All right. We are back for another semester of Compass Night, believe it or not. Here we go. Some of you have been here for a long time. We've gotten through all the divisions of theology. We did Old Testament survey. We did a study of world religions and the cults. And we need to cap this runoff with a series on New Testament survey. So this is going to be a good time together. We've got uh, no better book to be studying. There's uh, nothing better for us to do with our Thursday night than to spend time together studying God's Word. So we want to get into it. But before we do, let's, let's pray together. Pray with me, please. God, if there's anything right now standing between us and you as we think through your word, I pray you would uh, quickly bring that to mind, allow us to confess our sins. We thank you that you are faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And we're so grateful for the cross that the New Testament speaks of that gives us bold assurance to come into your presence, so to speak, in our prayers, asking you for help and for grace for favor in our time of need, when we have trouble, when we have lack, when there is any kind of of shortcoming in our lives, and we ask for your strength and your enablement, your empowerment in our lives. God, we think as we study your word, we'd like to have you enlighten us, as the Bible says, that act of illumination, give us insight into your word. And as we think at the 30,000 foot view of your New Testament truth, I pray you would give us great insight tonight as we try to study historically the setting, the background, even how these books fit together. So God, guide us through this time, excite us with the good things that we study, and I pray it would make a difference in the way we think, the way we live, and even the way we handle accurately and rightly the word of truth. So we commit our time together for you. I pray that everyone here, and even some that aren't here yet would uh, make it all the way through our December study and that we would be uh, faithful to learn segment by segment, week by week. And uh, we commit our time to you and our minds to you now in Jesus name. Amen. All right. Well, if you were with us last year, we studied the Old Testament and I thought it'd be appropriate for us to compare the Testaments together before we get too far into our study. Let us have a chart right out of the gate. Let's talk about some basic data, as basic as we can get about Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament and New Testament. Let's compare a few things here. Of course, Christ is the focal point of Scripture. He's the most important figure, beginning in Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. And if you wanted to put it in a word, the Old Testament, certainly anticipating Christ and all that he is going to do. And the New Testament is going to give us the explanation of who he is and what he accomplished. So the Christ is anticipated in the old, he's explained in the new. Just to give us that kind of sense of scope to the New Testament and the Old Testament. The Old Testament was penned, you might remember, the first five books after the exodus from Egypt from about 1440. They went out in 1445, 1440-ish to 430. Malachi was pinned, we said, as we looked at those last three books of the Old Testament. So you got about a thousand year stretch of time. Now, how far does it cover? Well, it certainly covers right up to 430 BC, but in terms of the starting point, we don't know exactly. So what about the New Testament? In terms of books pinned, We'll learn this starting with uh, James in 45 uh, AD 45 all the way to, to the book of Revelation in the mid-90s, we'll call it 95. And if we were going to look at what it covers, it's certainly covering uh, the events of Mary to be found with Jesus in at least 4 BC, likely 5 BC. We'll go over that again at some point in the Gospels next week, uh, all the way through, if you look at the prophetic statements, all the way through the coming of the kingdom. The authors, there were 31 authors in the Old Testament, the prophets that wrote for us. 
In the New Testament, there are only nine. And that might make sense when we consider uh, even the scope of what is being written, the time frame in which it was written. The number of books in the Old Testament, as you know, 39. Books in the New Testament, 27. For a total of 66, as you learned as a child, I hope. Chapters, you may not remember, 929 in the Old Testament and 260 in the New Testament. And that's not a uh, perfect equation in terms of the actual volume. 77.5% of the words are found in the Bible. That's, of course, in Hebrew and 22.5% in the New Testament Greek. So that's why your Bible is always heavier on the left side than it is on the right side, depending on how many notes are attached to your study Bible. So very simple, just to get the lay of the land, to give you a reminder of what we're dealing with, we're comparing the Testaments. I started last year by talking about the fact that the Bible is God-breathed. We looked at this passage together, 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And you read that passage. It was easy for us as we studied it to consider what the New Testament authors were thinking about the Old Testament, the scriptures. And we need to say, well, how in the world can we claim that same verse and that same doctrine of the God-breathedness of scripture, that God actually spoke these things out through the pen of the, the apostles and prophets. How can that be? Because that's a statement, at least in the New Testament, referring to what would commonly be understood as the Old Testament, the scriptures, the writings, graphe, the, the word just means the, the writings, the sacred writings, as it says in context. Well, a few things that might help us with this. How do we know that the Old Testament has the same authority from God as the New Testament? A couple of things. The apostolic commission, very important. Probably the most important thing we could look at when we consider the New Testament authority is the upper room discourse in John chapter 14 through 16, These are very important chapters. They are not verses that you and I can claim. We can claim many of them that relate to the Spirit indwelling us, but we cannot claim the kind of promises that were made to those 11 who were faithful apostles who would then, with uh, one late in birth, be joined later, the Apostle Paul. But we have an apostolic commission. We have words like this. Jesus, these things I've spoken to you while I was still with you. Right? He says he said a whole body of teaching, and he's going to tell them to teach other people every, to obey everything he commanded. But the helper, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside and helps you, whom the Father will send in my name and all of my authority, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, a lot of liberals don't believe that about the writing of the New Testament. Uh, they believe that these guys were just mere researchers, like you and I might write a research paper. But the Bible says that the apostles had a promise given to them that they would be given a supernatural spiritual ability to not only uh, speak authoritatively in the name of Christ, that's what apostle actually came to mean, certainly when we use it with a capital A, someone authorized to speak for someone who's not there, that apostle, that apostolic authority. But they'll be able not only to speak in his name, but to remember all that I've said to you. That is something that you and I can't claim the way that they did. John chapter 14 should remind us of Matthew 24, verse 35, where Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. So he speaks the same way about his own teaching that Isaiah 40 speaks about the Old Testament. As God speaks through the prophets in the classical period of the the prophets of the Old Testament, he says, everything else is going to go away. Flower fades, grass withers. It's all going to be dried up in a heat and burned. But the but the word of God, it stands forever. That's the same kind of authority Christ gives to his words. Now he's given the apostolic commission to them that you're going to speak my words in my name and you're going to remember what I taught you. Uh, that means that what the apostles speak under that promise as they speak as apostles have a kind of word that Isaiah could claim 
of having words that would be eternally true. John 16, later in the Upper Room Discourse, verse 13, he says things like this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. There's the prophetic nature of the apostolic gift, that they would not only speak things that they'd heard, but things that are yet to come. That's why we can look at the book of Revelation or 1 Thessalonians or Colossians or any other passage that speaks to the future and say, here again is an authority passed from Jesus to the apostles. And when they speak in their apostolic office or they write as a writing prophet of the New Testament, that they have the authority of God. And they certainly make that assertion when they write their letters. Now, this is probably one, though you might be reluctant to claim the promises of the Upper Room Discourse, because when you were in Awana or Boys Brigade or Pioneer Girls or whatever you were in, you had a hard time memorizing verses, so you know that you didn't have the promise to remember everything that Christ said, but they certainly do, and you recognize the distinction. But many people read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and they always want to apply these words to themselves. Read the context carefully. Paul is talking about himself and his apostolic authority that he has with the rest of the apostles. And he says, these things God has revealed to us, things that have been kept secret, things the Spirit, but the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And he says, now we've received the Spirit, the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us. That's not all of us. That's the apostolic band by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. I don't think any of you should claim that you're teaching something that's not taught by human wisdom. You, you secondarily express that or reflect that in your study of the Bible. But they are claiming here, the Apostle Paul in this case, that he's speaking something that comes from God, the Spirit of God who searches the depth of God. For who has understood the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him. He quotes that Old Testament passage. Who knows the mind of the Lord? Well, no one does, right? We can't construct him. That's the whole challenge of Job in the book of Job. But he says, no, no, but we have the mind of Christ, the second person of the Godhead. That's a statement of apostolic authority, an assertion that the apostles have authority. In this case, when they write in 1 Corinthians. And don't let that passage throw you when Paul says about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, the Lord says this about marriage. And then he says, the Lord didn't say this, but I say this. And he goes on to say in chapter 7, and some people think, well, that's the Lord's command. That has authority. This is Paul's opinion because he says, I say this. The Lord didn't say this. He's quoting things that Christ said about marriage. And then he says, now I say this. And he gives that uh, assertion about or, or, or teaching about marriage and singleness. And then he says, and I have the spirit of God. He's claiming, again, this apostolic authority as one untimely born, he says in his writings. The assertion in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. There's the picture of God's people being such and having the gifts of forgiveness and having inclusion into the family of God because the entirety of the church has been built on the apostles and prophets. That is the foundation, Christ himself being the cornerstone. But they are part of the supporting structure of all this, the teaching coming through the apostles and prophets. The assertion in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 2, notice this statement, you should remember the predictions, Peter says, of the holy prophets and the commandment, that's an authoritative exhortation, something you're supposed to do, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. We are the sent ones given to you this information as commands from the Lord. They're asserting their authority as apostles. There is that apostolic authority authentication as well. There's an authentication that comes because they're doing things that prove that they are 
authorized to speak with that kind of authority, the God-breathed truth that comes from God. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. Uh, That's not happening next door when people claim to be wonder workers from God, but when people in the first century were speaking as apostles, they were speaking and having authoritative miracles take place in their presence. Someone can fall off of a, a window and die and be brought back to life because the apostolic signs, as it's put here, signs of a true apostle. And there were some in Corinth, much like today, people claiming apostolic authority, and they didn't have the signs and wonders to authenticate it. Apostolic authentication. And certainly there's an affirmation going on, certainly in passages like this in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, when he speaks about the coming of the Lord, he speaks about these prophetic things that are coming in the future, and he says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote, according to the wisdom given him, again, that's the wisdom he claims in 1 Corinthians as coming from God, through the Spirit of God, searches the deep things of God, knowing the mind of God, having the mind of Christ, as he does in all of his letters, when he speaks of them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do, important Greek word here, translated other, and it means other, other scriptures, like the rest of scriptures, the rest of the scriptures. Again, the tographe, the writings of the Bible that are God-breathed. And now Peter is saying of Paul, hey, people are twisting the scriptures, the Paul Pauline scriptures, just like they twist the other scriptures. Both the Old Testament and New Testament are God-breathed. Certainly there's an apostolic acceptance, which may not mean much to you because there's plenty of people that believe any old tweet that gets tweeted out there, I suppose. But nevertheless, these are people that are in their sound mind and their writings show and prove something about their spirituality, their intelligence, their integrity. But if you look throughout the writings of the church fathers, you wouldn't have to get very far. I've got, I don't know, 13, 14 volumes of the writings of the pre-Nicene fathers, and any pastor does. We have them all electronically now. They're easy to search. Everything before the mid, the early fourth century, you have all of these leaders of the church preaching authoritatively, and you'll find that all 27 books are quoted even before you get through half of that series. They're all quoted as authoritative by 150 AD, every New Testament book. Now, there were disputes about books as we studied in bibliology many years ago, and some people debated. They said, well, I don't know about Hebrews because it's not clear who the author is. I'm not sure about James because it looks like it's contradicting Romans. And they had debates. But there were, among all of the early church fathers, every New Testament book quoted as authoritative. Examples, I just put a couple, the epistle of Barnabas, for instance, calling the writings of the New Testament scripture, just like Peter does of Paul's writings. Things like God says, and then quoting a New Testament passage, Clement to the Corinthians, again, a very early text saying scripture when it speaks of New Testament letters and God said, when speaking of things that are in the epistles, the Didache, if you're familiar with that, probably one of the earliest extra biblical writings, the Didache, the teaching of the 12, that's what that means, the teaching, Ignatius, Polycarp, we could go on and on, the early church fathers referring to these books as scripture. Not only are they deemed as scripture, by the early church, they are stated and asserted to be scripture, and they were authenticated by the miraculous, which, by the way, right out of the New Testament age, all of these folks were saying what a lot of people today are afraid to say, and that was those miraculous signs and wonders were contained within the generation of the apostles, just like it was contained in the generation 
of Joshua and Moses and Elijah and Elisha and the classical prophets and these small rashes of the miraculous signs and wonders. All right, both are God-breathed. We could go much further in that, and I think we do in our Bibliology series, but that's an important place to start. We're dealing with God's Word here. Now, why do we need a New Testament? What was wrong with the Old Testament? That's a great question. Letter C. Testament, you might remember from last year, is a covenant. What does that mean? It means it's an agreement or a contract. It's a partnership between two parties, God's people and himself. Now, sometimes it's with the whole world, like the Noahic covenant back in early Genesis. Remember in Genesis 9, I won't flood, I won't destroy the world again with a flood. Uh, but the critical covenants that relate to where the New Testament is going, you see certainly in Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant. We looked at that last year, the land covenant, sometimes called in the old days at least, the Palestinian covenant, the land covenant, Deuteronomy 29, Exodus 20, the Mosaic covenant of the law code, Second Samuel 7, which you'll study in men's Bible study and women's Bible study this year, the Davidic covenant. These are the covenants that we have in the Old Testament Uh, most importantly, was the forecast of the new covenant, it's called in Jeremiah 31. So we have all these covenants that really build one upon the next as we tried to teach last year. And then there's this forecast of a coming covenant. Matter of fact, that's the way I put it as I looked at my notes from last year, as I taught Jeremiah 31, it's a forecast of a coming new covenant. When you say New Testament, that's what you're saying, a new covenant, covenant, a new agreement a new arrangement, a new partnership, a new promise, a new covenant, a new testament. That new covenant was an expansion of the Abrahamic covenant. That's the foundational covenant as it relates to salvation, primarily with this phrase, when it says, after all these promises to Abraham and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that doesn't mean they'll have a nice stretch camel, you know, parked out front or a mansion or a nice vacation chateau in the Jordan desert. It it means what the New Testament is always dealing with when we're dealing with the ultimate issues of our sin and acceptance and favor is that that blessing will be that we'll be God's people. Just like Abraham and his faith was credited to him as righteousness, that he would be acceptable to a righteous God. And all the families of the earth are going to have that relationship with God from each tribe, tongue, and nation as they have this fulfillment that comes from the Abrahamic covenant, salvation. And we see that in the book of Hebrews, which is so critical in comparing the two covenants. To take all those covenants of the Old Testament, and and as I said last year, those are really the Old Testament is the Old Testaments. It's a set of covenants. The New Testament is the new covenant that was forecast, and it dealt with our salvation, that blessing that comes of being rightly related to God. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, that's the focus in chapter 7, what further need would there been for another priest to arrive after the order of Melchizedek. Not an Aaronic priest from Levi, but another priest, someone else that can bring us into the presence of God, not with sacrifices that spill the blood of bulls and goats, but some kind of payment for sin that was complete. We need that because the old covenant couldn't cut it when it comes to those things. Notice this, Hebrews 9, 12, that Christ, he comes and he enters once and for all into the holy places, not just the holy of holies, but the holy place and the holy of holies. He goes into this, this symbolically described picture of the presence of God, not because as they did on Yom Kippur after spilling blood of animals, but by means, it says not of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, that he was willing to spill his own human blood in an act of God punishing humanity in him so that now he could buy back the people of God, redemption, buy them back eternally, not through some customary redoing of some kind of blood sacrifice by animals. Hebrews 9, 26, he's appeared once for all 
at the end of the ages, unlike the recurring day of Yom Kippur or all the sacrifices that were done in the morning and evening in the temple, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages, the new covenant. This is the fulfillment of it all. The end of the ages started with the coming of Christ and, and ends with the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The covenant, the priesthood, the temple, the, the sacrifices, all of those replaced by Christ. As a matter of fact, he says it's so much better than the old that it makes the old obsolete. The old covenant, as it relates to how I'm supposed to relate to God, it's obsolete. Now, there's a new way to relate to God, and that's through this alliance with Jesus Christ. One more, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And that's the problem. I want to be right with God. So God has to say to Abraham, to Noah, to Daniel, to Jeremiah, to everyone in the Old Testament, listen, you love me, you're godly, you trust in me, but you're never going to measure up. So I've got to somehow take that faith and credit you with the kind of righteousness you need, which is not relative righteousness, that you're better than the next guy. Because even Job, when he gets enough pain, starts to say things sinfully that he should never say. Maybe not in the first two chapters, but he does. So what we need is perfect righteousness. And the problem is, I can't have my sins taken away by any kind of sacrifice. None of it worked. We'll credit him righteousness, and we'll have to draw it from a future event at the cross of Christ. So Christ, but when Christ appears, by contrast, he's offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And he sat down at the right hand of God. That's what the Old Testament was waiting for. It was anticipating that, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times. He's made them right. He's made them righteous. Those who are being sanctified, set apart. We got another one, got another one, another one. This people of God being increasingly sanctified, set apart this kingdom of priests before God because our great high priest has accomplished what we need. And that's the forgiveness of our sins. So that's why we need the New Testament. It's not just an example, as the liberals would say among us, that Jesus has come to show us a demonstration of love. He's showing us what it's like to put others' needs before himself. He dies as a martyr. Lots of martyrs, even in the Old Testament. People sawn in two, people thrown into the fire, people killed. Doesn't do anything for my sins. This is one event that changes everything. So that's what the New Testament is going to explain. The Old Testament anticipated it. The New Testament explains it, and it directs our focus to trusting in Christ. All right, let's get a quick and very simple overview. Unlike last year where we laid this set of 39 books out in a way that I wanted you to memorize, this is so easy and simple. We can go over it once and just at least think categorically about it without referencing it for the rest of the year. But let's do our best to try and lay out these books. I didn't do it as detailed on your worksheet as I did on my overhead, but you can see you've got four categories, and let's start with those categories. Category number one, history. Obviously, there's some history in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's your first four, the Gospels. We'll talk more about the distinctions between the Gospels next week. We'll talk about the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We'll talk about why John is different, but that's the history, obviously, of Christ. And there's another history book, the book of Acts, the history of the apostles and the early church. We see the shift from a focus on salvation to the Jews to a shift to the, the apostle to the Gentiles and those that are going to be saved from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's the history of the early church. There's one more history book. It's the book of Revelation that's yet to be fulfilled, the last book that's written, and it's a forecast of coming history. So I'll put it in the category of history. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Revelation. Very simple. You've already got it memorized. Paul's letters to the churches. By the way, on that top row, you've got far more than half of the New Testament. I should have put that out in percentages based on 
word count, but I didn't take the time to do that. That's most of the New Testament right there. As a matter of fact, Luke and Acts, those two together constitute more by one author than any other author of the New Testament, even though you're going to see that Paul's got all these letters that he wrote. And they're categorized this way, in letters to the churches. Romans, of course, as we'll see, so impacted by Grecian Hellenized world that Paul writes them not in Latin, he writes this letter in Greek. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you know this, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. That's easy. Why? Because they're all in canonical order. I trust you've learned your books of the Bible in order. And you can see right here that save the connection between first and second installments to churches, which come at different times, they're all from descending order from largest number of words biggest volume to the smallest. Romans, that's your biggest book. And then 1 Corinthians is the second. 2 Corinthians is appended to 1 just because it goes with 1 Corinthians. Galatians is bigger than Ephesians. Ephesians bigger than Philippians. Philippians bigger than Colossians. This is all just arranged by volume, by size. Then we have another category, Paul's letters to individuals. And you know these because they go in canonical order. First Timothy, second Timothy, Titus. I put those to the left because those should be grouped in our minds as we'll see as what we call pastoral epistles. An epistle is simply the wife of an apostle. No, I'm just kidding. Just to see if you're awake. Epistle just is a short book. An epistle was a word they coined to distinguish between a book and a letter somewhere in between. Longer than a letter, it's shorter than a book. And yet we call them all three words. Epistles, we call them books, and we call them letters. There's one more to an individual, Philemon. So Philemon is the fourth one, but Philemon is not a a book to a pastor. It's about Onesimus, the runaway slave. Then there's letters by others, not the Apostle Paul, but others. Now you'll notice here, these are also arranged by size. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude biggest to smallest. When I counted nine authors of the New Testament, if you're really a statistics guy or gal, you said, I thought there were eight because you might think, think there's eight because you might have thought that the book of Hebrews is written by the apostle Paul. And if you believe that, you're going to say eight. Here's one reason all the way back to the very earliest canonical lists when they put them together in some kind of order that were then bound together in codices in the, in the ancient days. You can see that the early church clearly didn't understand the book of Hebrews to be written by Paul because they picked a big 13 chapter book. We call it chapters, but a large voluminous book. I don't know the word count off the top of my head, but there that is at the front of the letters by others because it's always greatest volume, biggest size to smallest. That's very simple. It's hardly worth even doing, but it helps you think in terms of some categories. And because they're mostly in canonical order, because they're just arranged logically, as opposed to the Old Testament, which there is a logic to, but we talked about it last year, we have to kind of figure it out chronologically. If you're just covering really a very short period of time in the New Testament versus a long period of time in the Old Testament, it's a whole lot less important for us to try and chronologically piece these out. And we will tease them out chronologically, and I'll show you all that in weeks to come. We try to look at every section of this in chronological order. And sometimes we'll have to guess at that as it relates to the Gospels next week, although there's plenty of theories about that. All right, background. Now here, let's get into some detail here about the background to the New Testament. And I put a chart together here for you. It looks a little funny, and I didn't put the little boxes in the middle, but let's try and figure this out. These are decades, or I should say centuries here to the left, right? 
you see how it goes from 500, 400, 300, 200, 100, and then 100 again. There's no zero, but you've got the first century AD, first century BC. So the top line of 100 is actually 100. The top line of 200 is 200. The top line of 300 is 300. These are the centuries as well, right? First, second, third, fourth, fifth century BC. You follow that? All right, let's fill these in. Rough and dirty, not that dirty, but a little bit rough here. The Old Testament ends uh, just about 400. I said 430, so if you want to be very specific, you can move that line a little bit. But this is just a simple chart, very small. Old Testament. Then down here, we got the New Testament. We can't jump into the New Testament right out of the Old Testament. Why? Because we have this stuck in the middle of it, the intertestamental period. Old Testament, New Testament, this intertestamental segment or section. So that's what we really need to think through tonight. It will set us up to understand the New Testament. And much like the Old Testament, we had to start with concepts like when we got to the Exodus, we're dealing with a national power called Egypt. And then we're dealing with, you know, Philistines and Canaanites. And then we're dealing with Assyrians and Babylonians and Medo-Persians and all that. We, we have to kind of think through that whole progress, sequential progress of world leaders as well. Uh, but before we do that, let's just get our bearing. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, those are the last three books of the Old Testament, right? About 450, 450, 430 in terms of years, BC. And remember, these were called the what kind of prophets? What's the word? They were called post-exilic prophets. These were the post-exilic, I know they're minor prophets, but they're the post-exilic minor prophets. Why? Because they came after the exile. The exile was the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Babylon took them off into exile. Daniel, Ezekiel were in the middle of the exile. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi were the prophets at the end. But there were two historical books that came after the exile. What were those? Two historical books of the Old Testament that came after the exile. Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra dealt with the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah dealt with the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. So those books finish the Old Testament history for us before we get into this intertestamental period. New Testament, of course, the figures, obviously, I guess we could start with John the Baptist, but the whole thing's about Jesus and the apostles. So let's put those figures down there. And I really wanted to put the names of the people, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And I would put one more between the two for extra credit points. Who goes between Ezra and Nehemiah? There's a name there. I said no one names their kid this anymore. Zerubbabel, very good. There's, Zerubbabel could fit in there, so I should have put him in there, I suppose. That would have been good. Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah. New Testament, I'm just putting the, the names here. You put John the Baptist, Jesus, apostles. But you know, obviously it starts the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right, the kingdom is very important. We call it Medo-Persia because the Medes were involved in this, but let's just for the simplicity's sake and history's sake, at least for uniformity, call them the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire is what we see in the, even in the Old Testament coming on the scene, which actually allowed for the exiles to return to Jerusalem. The Babylonians were not interested in letting the Israelites go back to their land, but the Persians lightened up and had an affinity to the Jewish people. And some people think because they were much more monotheistic than the, the Babylonians, but nevertheless, we know the story of Nehemiah. You remember the Cyrus's decree to go back and rebuild the temple. The Persians were the key there from 539 to 331. You can put down some dates there. These are all BC, of course. You've got the Persians in power as the world leaders. What comes next, you might remember even from the book of Daniel, after the Medo-Persians, you had the, the Grecian Empire from 331 to 143. And actually, you could put that all the way, as we'll see in a minute, to the 
next box, the blue box, that's the, re- that's the reason I jog that other box in and I'll explain this in a minute. But the next empire, I wanted to put segments of time, periods of time that relate to Israel and what's going on in Israel. So we can't skip something that changes very dramatically between the Grecian empire and the Roman empire. And that's the Hasmonean empire or the Hashmoneans, they're sometimes called Hashmonean from 143 to 63. If you know your history, 63, critical turning point for the between the Greeks and the Romans is the Roman Empire. And of course, that runs through the New Testament all the way into the 5th century. Persians, Medo-Persians, you got the Greek Empire, you've got the Roman Empire, and the Hashemians. We're going to have to unpack those and understand those as we think through the setup for the New Testament. Because we can't go from all that's going on in the Old Testament to the New Testament. I should note this, by the way, as you read anything about the Bible and in biblical commentaries. And I tried to explain this last year, but it's good. It's worth refreshing. We had a tabernacle that was constructed by Moses as the centerpiece of worship. That was a tent. But the Ark of the Covenant was there, the showbread, the candelabra, all of that. That was the center of worship. It was all depicting what Christ would ultimately fulfill. Then we built a building. And what do we call that? It wasn't called the tabernacle. It was called the temple. And who built that? Solomon built that. So about rough and dirty, the 10th century BC, we have a new temple. It's built in Jerusalem. David wanted to build it. God didn't let him. Solomon, his son, built it. It was destroyed in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar's army. So that was destroyed. Then you had it rebuilt. Remember, as we went back in Ezra's day, Zerubbabel was there. You had the rededication of the temple and all that takes place in Ezra and the prophets. And you see that as the commencement of another temple. That's called the second temple. Matter of fact, everything in the intertestamental period, if you read any kind of critical commentary, exegetical commentary, they'll talk about the second temple period. That's this period right here. Coming out of the Old Testament, they had just built it. Matter of fact, they weren't even finished with it when we had the last post-exilic prophets. They were calling them, like in Haggai, to get back to building the temple and finishing it up. How can you dwell in your paneled, cedar-paneled houses, but you haven't given your money to get the temple built? So that Uh, to get it finished at least. That's what was going on in the end of the Old Testament. Second temple starts and all the development of the second temple worship and the mindset, which so many people that want to write about the New Testament want to get in the mind of the second temple period of, of Judaism. Just to give you a little bit of what's going on in the world at this time, I threw some names in there and because I have to stack boxes, they're not all perfectly in chronology, you know, met perfectly with those centuries. But there are some names you should know that are popping up here. Socrates, of course, in the 5th century, mid-400s, I think 469 he was born, B.C. Socrates, and of course, thinking of philosophy, Plato follows him up as his understudy. During that period of time, in 384, a super important figure... I put him toward the beginning of the Grecian Empire, of course, because Alexander the Great was all about taking his culture and his armies and plowing over everything that he could find. So Alexander the Great, and of course, we're still finished that triad of philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. That all comes during this period. You might remember, and we could spend a lot of time on philosophers that have some impact on the New Testament, but Epicurus, Epicurus, like the, remember the New Testament, the Epicurean philosophers that Paul has to deal with in Athens, uh, Epicurus was the philosopher that said that you, a lot like hedonism of, of our day to, to the happiness and pleasure, that's the ultimate goal and the highest fulfillment 
of life certainly had a lot of influence in what we see even the book first corinthians that paul has to deal with as we transition out of grecian power in the world and it's transitioning to roman power you have the punic wars which you may have been forced at some point to study or read punic has to do with anything related to carthage and carthage of course started this series of battles that ended up tipping the balance of power to the romans i'm going to stick that hashmonean period between the grecians and the romans because i want to talk about what was going on in israel during that time and we'll figure that out very important if you know anything about biblical literature between the testaments you know this guy antiochus the fourth Antiochus IV, as we'll learn about in a minute, is a critical figure. He's also called Epiphanes, which is a very self-serving, self-aggrandizing name. I'll talk about that a little bit. Who attacks the Jews in Israel. The one who foiled him ultimately was Judas Maccabeus. That's why Judas is a popular name in the first century. You'll see Judas, of course, Iscariot and the other Judas. And Judas is in the early church. But once it caught on that Judas was the betrayer. Of course, there's no Judases in our nursery these days. But Judas was a a name a lot of Jewish people in the first century were naming their kids after because Judas Maccabeus was the hero of wresting the temple back from Antiochus, the Seleucid king. We'll talk about that. Julius Caesar, just to get into some Shakespeare, I guess, as the historical figure here. He's just about, I think he was born in 100, certainly occupied that last century before the coming of Christ. And a figure that starts to overlap from intertestamental period history to biblical history is Caesar Augustus, who we meet in Matthew 2 in the biblical narrative. So there's some names, and we could spend a lot of time throwing things in the middle of that. I'll deal with culture as we move forward in this study and, 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 and move through our outline, but that gives you a sense of a little bit, at least a, a few high points and just a few. So let's talk about each of these. Let's start with the Persians, letter B. You understand something about this Persian period from 539 to 331. You know the beginning of it because you know how it all went down in the book of Daniel and how the Babylonians were overthrown. Daniel's a great book to see the transition between Babylon and the Medo-Persians. It's right in the middle of the exile when this happens. They're prisoners, and they find themselves as prisoners under new management, and the Persians, as I said, put them in much better conditions. They treated them better. They cared for them more. They sympathized with their problems and ultimately underwrote Cyrus himself underwrote the return of Nehemiah in particular as he speaks of being a cupbearer to Artaxerxes and first Cyrus to allow them to go back. But those early Medo-Persian kings were helpful in allowing Israel to go back and rebuild the, uh, the temple and the city of Israel. More can be said about that. But this is more important for us to focus on because it has so much to do with the Jewish mindset in the New Testament, the Greek period, from 331 to 143, at least as it relates to Israel. Hellas is the Greek word that, if you were to see it in a lexicon, a Greek lexicon, it means Greece, the, the, the country, the empire, the culture. So when you speak of the Hellenization of the world, it was Greece's desire to see everybody be like them, and, and that kind of quote-unquote imperialistic mindset to make everything Greek in the ancient world. You'll see this word pop up, and I know this is too small to probably read, but I just screenshot it. Oh, you can, I can read it, but I'm closer than you. In Acts, we see this going on. Matter of fact, I should have put the NAS or the CSB, or there's several translations that add the word Jew next to it, the Hellenistic Jews. The dispute when we first got deacons and they started to serve the tables, and Stephen is a part of that, was because there, were, uh, there was a dispute between the, 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 the Jewish people that had kept their heritage clean from any of the Hellenization 
without any of that Greek culture affecting them, at least to the extent that the Hellenized Jews and the passages in Acts 6, Acts 9, and Acts 11 all deal with those who had kind of, as some purists would say, had compromised their their lives. And if you look in the, I guess I put the Greek New Testament up here, I mean, there's our word, an adjectival form of the word hellas, the, the word to Hellenize, the Hellenistic, or I guess the uh, ESV says the Hellenists. That's interesting that they call them that. Because if you read that, you wouldn't even recognize that they're Jewish people. But that's why the, the CSB and the NAS, and I think even the NIV put the word in italics next to it, the Hellenistic Jews. Well, this is all about one guy, obviously. Ultimately, it starts with Alexander the Great. And he's called the Great because if you didn't call him that, you'd die. <laughs> he was born in 586. He was remarkable from his youth, strong-willed. He fought like no one had in his mid-20s. He'd pretty much conquered the world by his 30s. He had taken over 50% of the inhabited world. This is a relief, by the way, from 100 AD, a mosaic in a Roman floor in Pompeii, a remarkable archaeological mosaic of Alexander fighting Darius III. This is actually a picture of him overcoming the, the Persians and taking prominence and making Greece what it is or what it was in his day. And I know this map is too small, but if you were to think about the world, a lot of the stuff that's not lightened here is nothing but desert or places you wouldn't want to inhabit. He had conquered the world. He had gone through, he died young, but in his, by the time he was 30, he had, he'd won battle after battle after battle. I pulled up a timeline and I just stuck Alexander the Great and I, it was just interesting to see how it read. Alexander the Great conquers Persia. Alexander the Great defeats Darius. Alexander the Great founds Alexandria. Alexander the Great conquers Judea. Alexander the Great invades Egypt. Alexander the Great conquers Tyre and Sidon. Alexander the Great defeats Darius. Alexander the Great conquers Gaza. Alexander the Great controls Samaria. Alexander the Great arrives in India. And, and this, this is a busy busy calendar for Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great begins his conquest of Persia. Alexander the Great uh, conquers Cyrene. Alexander the Great conquers Lycia. Alexander the Great conquers Miletus. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. Look at the very bottom. Alexander the Great declares himself a god, if you can read that. I guess so. He was talk about the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world. It was Alexander the Great. And he, because of his great success, had set a stage for a kind of rival deity that the Romans picked up on, and it made Christianity a sitting duck for persecution, in part because of really the absolutely unthinkable prowess and power and and military acumen of of Alexander the Great. So his goal then, of course, because he had all the power and everyone feared him, was to make the world Hellenized. And it started with the Greek language, which is great. It's great because of the exacting nature of the Greek language. And of course, the New Testament is going to be written in Greek. But before it's written in Greek, you had the Old Testament translated into Greek. And if you're reading a commentary and you see the letters LXX, if it's talking about grammar or talking about a word or talking about vocabulary, LXX, so the Roman the Roman letters for 70, and they uh, represent 70 scholars that worked on the translation of the Old Testament. Now, why is that so important? Well, because it's largely attested. There's a few things that make this great. It was put in the library in Alexandria. Alexandria, Egypt is an arid, very dry place. He had the money, he had the power, he wanted everything, every important book put in his library in Greek, and that allowed it, gave it a great staying power. If you could, you know, if you put a book in Syria or Antioch or Sidon or, you know, in a lot of places, in Turkey, it would not have the survivability that it does in Greek. And because Greek continued to be spoken, 
from, I mean, the third century domination of Alexander the Great all the way through the Byzantine Empire in the, in, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th century AD. If you think about the staying power of that language, it is an amazing thing to get the Bible, the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament in Greek. And, and we love Hebrew Bibles because, of course, we want to read it in the language it was originally written in. The problem was we don't have as many extant existing documents of the Old Testament back to those early years. In, in Hebrew, we've got, we've got much more in Greek. So it's a helpful, very helpful thing. Of course, we have plenty of, and this is for our textual criticism study in bibliology, but there's plenty of reliability we can put in the Old Testament. The Jewish people were far more meticulous. They had professional scribes that made these copies. Nevertheless, it's super helpful as we think about text critical issues and deciding what these ancient manuscripts, what was originally written by Moses or Daniel or, or Isaiah, to know what was written. We're helped by the fact that we have this uh, great testimony in a very exacting language. And that's a helpful part too, because anybody goes to school, as we'll teach, I trust, in CBI, uh, Hebrew and Greek, you see the massive difference between the Hebrew language that doesn't have the exacting nature of the Greek language. And even to have this put in such an exacting language so early on is just a helpful cross-reference to all of our understanding of the Hebrew Old Testament. So we get the Septuagint. We call it the Septuagint. It means 70. The Septuagint that comes out of this Hellenization process. Alex, I wouldn't call him that if he were here, but Alex, Alex, I just needed to fit on one line, is dying at age 33, and he ends up splitting up his empire. And he, he does that between four of his generals. Two kingdoms prevailed, two didn't. I mean, they became really inconsequential in the ancient world. But there were two kingdoms that prevailed to end up controlling and having an a impact on ancient Israel that would have an impact on the New Testament. That's the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. The Seleucids and the Ptolemies become the distinct parties that have a impact on the New Testament world and on Israel in those intertestamental periods. The Ptolemaic kingdom is down south. Its capital is Alexandria, Egypt, which is named after Alexander the Great, which makes sense. And you have the Seleucid kingdom up north, which is centered in Syria. And the capital of that is Antioch in southern Turkey. You can see it there, the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire. And of course, our little piece of real estate that we're interested in and all the New Testament events take place in is right here in the middle between those two. So you can see just being squeezed between these two is something of importance to us. You can't get the New Testament in the form that we have it. And I mean that in terms of culture, in terms of religious pressures, in terms of the mindset of the zealots or the, or the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin. You, you can't understand those things without knowing some of those forging pressures of the Seleucid and Ptolemaic empire on Israel. So we'll look at some of that. Let's look first at the Ptolemies. The Ptolemaic impact on Israel, let's call that the, the Ptolemaic period, 321 to 198. That is a relatively quiet period. The Ptolemaic kingdom in the south was pretty much a friendly neighbor that certainly wanted to remind the Israelites that they were strong and in charge, but their influence of Hellenizing Israel was a whole lot less than it would end up being with the Seleucid kingdom, as we'll see. What was kind of neat between the Ptolemaic and Seleucid kingdom, although it's very uneasy and unsettling, is that they really had kind of this mutually assured destruction. You know, they knew that if they went to war with one another, it would just a bloody mess. And so they, you know, kind of had that tension that kept them at bay. 
And as Israel sat between the Seleucids up north and the Ptolemies down south, they both wanted Israel to kind of side with them. So in that sense, it's kind of nice to be wanted by, by both sides uh, as an ally. And, and that, even that support was what led to the Septuagint. They you know, wanted to show their support for Israel and their religion. So it was a good time, so to speak, relatively speaking. Of course, there's a lot of history we could talk about and you can learn about, but let's just summarize it briefly that way. The Seleucid kingdom is a little different. Actually, it's a lot different. 198 to 143 BC. This was a time of persecution. It was a time of persecution because though the Ptolemaic kingdom certainly wanted to Hellenize Israel, they wanted to give them the Greek language. They wanted them to speak Greek in the marketplace. They wanted to have, build them gymnasiums and have them reflect the importance of the Hellenized culture. The Seleucids say, no, we want more than you to be enculturated by the Greek culture. We want you to adopt its religion. And that was the rub. That became the sticking point. It became the source of division. You had those that said, okay, like you'd have a lot of people in our day, actually, I guess we have a lot of people in our day that say we're religious, we're people of another kingdom, we don't really belong here, we're just passing through, our citizenship is in heaven. But you have the culture pressing in on us, and there's an extent to which you can adapt to that culture, as Christians do to some extent. But then there's a point when you cross a line, and there's more than adaptation, there's kind of a, a surrender to the mores, and, and in, in our case, we, since we have this kind of secular naturalism in our day, a there's, there's a battle that goes on until finally you, you have compromise, a kind of spiritual compromise. And that was taking place. And you had some among the Jews that said, we're going to integrate, or we would say in missiology, we want to synchronize our Judaism with Hellenistic, the Hellenistic gods, in particular Zeus, that was the God that they wanted ultimately them to, to bow to and, and worship. And then you had those that were going to stand out and, and buckle down and say no. And they, of course, became the source of real persecution at the tip of the spear of the Seleucid kingdom. So back to our, our map here. You have these two kingdoms, and right between them, two empires, you have the little strip of land called Israel. And you had this period of mutually assured destruction that fell apart when a man came on the scene named Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV, called Epiphanes sometimes, Antiochus Epiphanes, was a guy who said, we're just going to stop pussyfooting around, if I can use that phrase, with those Israelites, and we're going to force them now. And let's start at the center of their worship. We're going to march up to the city of David, which is south of the Temple Mount. We're going to go into the walled city of Jerusalem. We're going to take over their worship center, and we're going to say that you must all worship Zeus which is exactly what he did. And to desecrate their worship, he put a, a pig on the altar and had it sacrificed. And so this was a really a compromise, and I guess I should bring Rome into this. The, Rome, the Roman Senate saw Antiochus as a growing threat. And as he saw Antio- as they heard of Antiochus go down to take on the Ptolemaic kingdom, the Romans sent ships from Kittim and said, you've got to turn back. You can't fight the Ptolemaic kingdom because they were afraid that he would win. And then because Rome had great aspirations of world conquest, Antiochus knew that if Rome was to come against him, he couldn't fight two battles at once. He couldn't fight the Ptolemies and he couldn't fight Rome at the same time. So as he marches through, he gets mad. He kicks, you know, a lot of dirt up and ends up desecrating the, the temple there on the 25th day of Kislev, which is in December, November, December timeframe in 168 BC. He has gone completely to the wall with this and has decided that there's no turning back. The Jews must submit. Out in the country, there were 
priests, there were leaders, there were rabbis, teachers, and they, of course, were dividing between those who said we can compromise and fit in and those that say we can't. There was a man named Mattathias. Mattathias had these boys trapping young pastor's kids and he said, we're not, we're not going to submit to this. And when the captains and the officials came from Antiochus, from village to village to have these priests renounce God and worship Zeus and sacrifice this desecration on their local altars, Mattathias said no and actually ended up killing the envoy from Antiochus, the Seleucid officers that were there. And that basically, you know, it's kind of now you've done it moment. And so Mattathias and his boys went up into the hills and basically became a resistance against this onslaught of religious persecution and began to fight back. The man that rose to the top among his sons to be the biggest fighter and the most zealous leader was the man Judas Maccabeus that we listed in the intertestamental period there. Judas Maccabeus rose up against Antiochus's forces. He got together this, you know, this army of, of resistance, these fighters who wanted to get the, the temple back. And so Mattathias and his son Judas Maccabeus fought with impossible odds to take back the Temple Mount and came, it came to a head on the Temple Mount against Antiochus, Judas and Antiochus. And they fought for 10 days, the Imperial Guard of, of the Syrians. And on, uh, interestingly enough, just three years later, on 25th of Kislev, 165 BC, three years to the day, they took back the Temple Mount. That was the time when they began a great festival of rededicating the temple. Of course, it had been desecrated. They got the priests together and they lit their candles and they celebrated a a huge feast of dedication, which is what the word Hanukkah is all about. Hanukkah is the feast of dedication that takes place in the winter. Uh, Kids left the 25th ever since as a reminder of God's grace of saving the Israelites from the onslaught of Antiochus Epiphanes and the Seleucid Syrian armies. That was something, by the way, it's interesting to see Christ talking about culture. I mean, that was a Jewish cultural celebration. It's nowhere in scripture in terms of a, you know, a mandated festival, but you would see Jesus going up, for instance, the gospel of John and celebrating what's called in that passage, the feast of dedication. When you read feast of dedication, that's the feast of dedication in the winter times. It talks about him walking along in the colonnade up there of the taking back the Temple Mount by Judas Maccabeus. And that's just interesting. And then he calls himself, by the way, the light of the world and all that and the living water, which is all part of the ceremony that goes on on the Temple Mount in the Hanukkah celebration. So anyway, it's great to see him, just like he did with weddings. I mean, to be at a wedding and, and to be a part of the cultural milieu of the, of the first century and also you know, using every opportunity he could to share the gospel. If you want to read about this, which is really dramatic, and it's actually good reading, and it's interesting reading, and every Christian in previous generations would spend time reading it, you need to go into the Apocrypha. And I know that's a scary set of books because the Catholics and the Council of Trent have said, if you don't have them in your Bible, you're going to hell, which is literally what they said. You're anathema, because they found two passages in there, one of them in the war of Judas Maccabeus coming back from a battle and talking about praying for those that had died. And they thought, well, Tetzel had said that selling indulgences to build our cathedrals during the 500 years ago goes during the pre-Reformation days, and you'll get your relatives out of purgatory. And because the Protestant leaders got so torqued at that, and, and that became the touchstone of the, of the Reformation, 
When the Catholics got together at the Council of Trent in the next several decades in the Counter-Reformation, they said, we're going to take those books that we've always read as history between the Testaments, the intertestamental history books, and we're going to make those scripture. And they authorized those as scripture. They're called the deuterocanonical books. Canonical, these books that come from God as though the church can ever authorize these books. Uh, They were not accepted initially as scripture. They don't read as scripture. I've read them several times. You can read them and you understand the distinction. I mean, there are some good history books like First and Second Maccabees that will tell you all about what we've just talked about during Antiochus and the Seleucid onslaught and even the next generation that came after that. But they're not scripture. They don't present themselves as scripture and they were never recognized as scripture. But nevertheless, you should read the Apocrypha. And I would say this only if you've read through the Bible several times. And if you want a good resource on Lagos, and I've looked at several and I use several, but this is the one I might recommend. I know it's a little pricey at 42 bucks, but... I like the fact that it's got notes, it's got decent commentary, it's got great intros to every book of the, of the Apocrypha. The main ones you want to start with, if you want to read them for the historical edification, you want to start in, in First and Second Maccabees. Uh, and it'll give good, good notes, it'll give you good background, and even where you see clearly these are fictional works, and many of them are, they're, they're fables. If you read the intro to the books in, in this reference work, it will help you through that. If you want some very, very short essays on them from completely different backgrounds, and you can read Don Carson's intro in this book. It's helpful. Plus, there's eight translations of the Apocrypha, starting with Greek in the first upper left-hand column. This is a great book by Oxford Press, and since I don't even know if it's in print anymore, you can get it from 20 bucks, and it's definitely worth $20, the Parallel Apocrypha. If you just say, I don't want to read any of that, I just want someone to summarize it all for me, then here's the book you want to get right here, The Invitation to the Apocrypha by Daniel Harrington. This is a great book because it's not only the Apocrypha, but you'll see a lot of history that relates to the Apocrypha, but they're great summaries and good explanations, and it's just a, a decent, short, I mean, I don't know, 100, maybe 190 pages, 200 pages, I'm guessing, of good material on the Apocrypha. I try to get through the Apocrypha, I, won't, I try say I try to get through it once a year, but I get through it about every 15 months, and I think it's good, especially if you're going to lead and know anything about the intertestamental period, to at least read the historical books in the Apocrypha. It's about, depending on how you count them, about 12 to 17 books, and some are pretty long. All right, enough on the Apocrypha for tonight. We can deal with that more in our bibliology seminars. Hashmonean period. I'm calling it the Hashmonean period because it deals with what's going on in Israel and has a lot of effect on what's coming next, the Hashmoneans. Hashmon is Mattathias's family name. That's his name. That's his family name, his surname, if you will, Hashmon. And so the folks that become leaders clearly after this dramatic overtake of the temple in, in 165 is Mattathias's family. They're called the Hashmoneans. And the one who comes to rule after Judas's success is his brother Simon. He becomes the Interestingly enough, the priest and the civil leader, it's almost like a Christ figure in that he's trying to be a civil leader, like a, like a king, although he's not a king, and a priest, a spiritual leader as well. Simon, the brother of Judas, rules in this period of time. It certainly empowered the priesthood, because when you have much like you do in the medieval days of our era, the church age, when you blend the church and state into one conglomerate, you end up having some very, very powerful people at the top of that pyramid. And so that's basically what you've got going on here in the uh, first and second century BC. Now, Rome let this go for a long time. 
Matter of fact, in 139, they signed a treaty with the Hashmoneans, and they said, hey, we're going to let you guys do your thing. We'll stay out of your way. I mean, we'll keep an eye on you. But basically, they have a treaty that keeps things at, at the status quo, as they put it. Problem was, no one liked what was going on with all the power grabs, and there was a lot of civil war that was brewing. There was a lot of internal struggles that made this a very tumultuous time. And it didn't help that uh, Harkanus, Harkanus, John Harkanus comes on the scene, that's Simon's son. He ends up taking over, and much like you have with guys that say, my dad, thinking back to Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, I mean, my dad, you thought my dad was hard on you, I'm going to be even harder on you. You had uh, a lot of polarizing effects from John Harkanus. And when that happened, John said, we're going to strengthen our our relationship with Rome. And of course, the Jewish people didn't like that, especially a group of people that wanted to separate from them. The word Pharisee means the separate ones. The Pharisees grew out of John Harkanus's resistance, or I should say, uh, insistence on having Rome to see uh, that they saw him in bed with, with Rome, so to speak. John even tried to take the worship of Yahweh and extend that into the Edomites and force the Edomites to worship with them. And that, of course, was repugnant to most of these Jewish people. And it just created an increasing division among the people. So the Hashmonean period was tumultuous at best and civil war was brewing. And so what happened ultimately in 63 BC is Rome said, we've had enough of this. You guys are fighting and we're going to solve the problem. So Rome steps in. Rome becomes the answer to the strife in the Jewish state. Rome steps in to bring peace and that they actually did. The outside power kind of keeps the squabbling at a minimum. And this is where we have the heavy hand of Rome starting to extend from across the Mediterranean to tax them, but promise protection. And they said, okay, your son is going to become the real king. We're going to make John Harkanus II, the king of not just the Hashmoneans. We're not going to call him that. We're going to, we're going to say this is a Roman outpost. This is a place that we're going to have like a province that will be under our control. We will tax you at a greater rate. We're going to show our force among you by putting our Roman soldiers in your land in a way that you haven't seen in the past. And actually, while this was going on, and a lot of folks from internally and even from the Hashmonean family didn't care for what was happening, and though John Hyrcanus II enjoyed being the king, uh, Rome said, we're going to go outside to those Edomites that you tried to convert and include into your worship, and we're going to find our own king. Antipater became the groomed leader for the Israelites by the Romans. And the Romans said, we're going to put a guy in there that we can trust. It's our own guy. He doesn't have all this baggage from the Hashmonean family. And we're going to raise him up to be the leader of Israel. Rome was all about that. He had a son. I think maybe you've heard of him. His name is Herod. And they said in 37 BC, Herod now will be the king. Now, you know Herod from the New Testament, certainly you know him from Matthew chapter 2, where he kills all the babies in Bethlehem, and that certainly is indicative of what we know of him. He was a, I just put it this way in a very professorial way, he was a slimy guy, a slimy and very cruel politician. He was not up for any rivals. He killed people in his own family. There's a play on words they used to say in Rome about Antipater's son, Herod. Quios in Greek is the word son. Hus is the word pig or swine. And they said, because he tried to ingratiate himself to the Jews, Herod did, he said it better to be his hus than his huios. 
because he'd kill his sons if his sons in any way became a threat to him. But the pigs, he was never going to kill because he didn't eat it because he was trying to be a Jew in all of his practices. He's in power, of course, at the time of Christ's birth. Now, this helps us narrow down, by the way, the birth of Christ, which may have been a little confusing when I said it earlier, that Christ was born before 4 B.C., I wish I had the sermon number, and I, one of you can probably look it up. When I taught on, and I know I was dumb to teach on it on a Sunday morning, but I, it was in the text. I guess this is, uh, oh, this has got to be Luke 2, so you can look it up for yourself on focal point. But Luke chapter 2, when you have uh, Quirinius mentioned, the governor, you have Herod the Great mentioned, and you have Caesar Augustus mentioned. Those reigns, there's only one short window of about eight years that you can have the birth of Christ where all of those leaders line up. And I know that's probably too small for most of you to see, but, and I got the dating system from the founding of Rome there. Nevertheless, that's neither here nor there. But 4 BC, if you look at the line where Herod the Great dies, Herod the Great dies, and that's a, that's, that's an indisputable, that's an indisputable date. And, and it's based on a, on an eclipse, and there's just, there's just no way around it astronomically. What isn't set in stone is Dionysius, who came up with the, the dating system that came centuries later when the Catholic Church wanted him to settle some things about the Easter dates, and he said, go create a calendar and let's rename our calendar or redate it, not based on the founding of Rome or any other battle. Let's, re, let's date it by the birth of Christ because everything's about Christ. And so they, he went off to do that and Dionysius uh, basically was wrong because there's no way that Christ, of course, was born when he said he was born because by his dating system, that put us at Herod's death at 4 BC, which he had to be alive because he's part of the story. Which, by the way, in Matthew, you'll see that Herod is said to die soon after that. And so it is. That just before Herod's death, Jesus is born. And Herod's last act of cruelty is the slaughter of the, of the innocents, as it's called, the, the infants in Bethlehem. All right, now I've got a weird little thing over there on the right that looks like I messed up. But it's a chart. These will be important to catch. And I know the text is small, but I wanted to fit it on one page so you could follow along. The word Herod is really a title. It starts with Herod the Great, Antipater's son. And he becomes... You know, the Herod we're introduced to at the beginning of Christ's life. Of course, we have all these silent years from Christ's life, his birth rather, until the temple uh, seen as a 12-year-old and then his adult life in his early 30s. But Herod the Great has got four sons of note, Aristobulus, Archelaus, Herod, Antipas, and Philip. Three of those four end up in the biblical story. Archelaus is only mentioned in passing in Matthew chapter 2. So we don't need to know much about him. Herod Antipas was one of his sons. That one is super important to know. Every single reference in the Gospels is referring to Herod Antipas, except for those early references in Luke 1 and 2 and Matthew 2. So when it says Herod in the scripture, we need to understand Herod as we read through the Gospels and, and think about what's going on next week. That's Herod Antipas. There's two Herods in the Gospels, Herod the Great and then his son Herod Antipas. Philip also shows up in Luke chapter 3, just by way of historical reference, and then in Matthew chapter 14, just by talking about who his wife is. And you might remember there's some weird thing about his wife. Yeah, his wife is Herodias, and that's kind of weird because it shouldn't shouldn't be your wife. Philip's wife who became Antipas's wife. Antipas, we'll get to in a minute, is the one that's rebuked in scripture. Anyway, and we're out. I see what the time says now, and I'm realizing how late I am. Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa I and Herod Agrippa II. Obviously, that makes sense. One's dad, one's junior. So you've got Herod Agrippa I is every Acts reference except Acts 4 and Acts 13, which is a reference to Antipas, looking back. But Herod the first, that is at least in the first half of Acts, that's who we're dealing with. Herod the second 
he's not called Herod anymore. He's called Agrippa. When Paul has his defense before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 27, he just refers to him as King Agrippa, but he's also Herod. So all of these are Herods. And then there's also these two figures that play into the story. Bernice is the wife of King Agrippa II. I say wife in quotations because she is actually living in with her brother. It is her brother. There's a lot you could say about that. You just look up Bernice in any Bible dictionary and it will explain the connection or even on Wikipedia, I'm sure it will explain it. And Drusilla, who is the wife of Felix, the governor, who's also there when Paul gives his defense in Acts, in that case in Acts 24. All right. I didn't have time for that. I can see now, but the Herods will come into play next week and it'll come into play in the following week in the book of Acts. And so we need to know that there are four, at least usually you can think in terms of four Herods, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Gospels, Herod Agrippa and Herod Agrippa II, also I mean, known as Agrippa in the book of Acts. Two Herods in the Gospels, two Herods in the book of Acts. One is distinguished clearly in the book of Acts by being called Agrippa, who's actually Agrippa II. I wish I could make it not confusing, but I didn't write history. So culture in the New Testament. We don't have time for any of this, I see now. Greco-Roman slavery is not American slavery. It's very different. It's so widespread that some would say up to 50% of the people in the ancient Greco-Roman world were slaves. And that did not mean the kind of image that you might conjure up if you think about American slavery and the abuse that took place in America, American slavery. Not that there wasn't abuse, but when there was a war, you had slaves. When you got into debt, you could sell yourself into slavery. If you were born of a slave, you became a slave. And it wasn't just poor people out there in the fields who were uneducated. You had teachers, you had doctors, you had dentists, you had philosophers, you had the poor, of course, obviously. You had workers, you had day laborers, you had tradesmen, you had all kinds of people that were slaves. Of course, the state of slaves, many of them did very well because they were like hired tutors, but it all depended on your master. And of course, masters had rights over slaves, became the number one motif for our lives as Christians. In Paul's writings, we are slaves of Christ. He is our master. He owns us. He's the best master. And he says, often in the New Testament, in that Greco-Roman slavery culture, you better be good masters to your servants, your slaves, and you better treat them fairly. And if you're a slave, he says, if you can get free and be independent, it's always better to be free than to be a slave, do it. But we're happily taking on the identity as a slave. The arts, of course, you learn a lot of this in school, the Roman architecture, even the Hellenistic influence on Roman architecture was amazing. The amphitheaters, part of this was because the Seleucids and the Ptolemaic kingdoms kept investing and coaxing and buying off. And then at one point, just forcing the culture on Israel that they had all kinds of things in Israel. They had, you know, the bathhouses, they had the the amphitheaters. If you've been to Israel with us and you go to several places and you still see the amphitheaters, you see at Caesarea is an amazing amphitheater that we still have remains of there, the Roman port on the Mediterranean coast. Extensive aqua Ducks. Matter of fact, if you go to Caesarea there in the coast of Mediterranean, one thing we always stop and see when we go to Israel, some of you are going to Israel this summer, uh, next summer, there's the, the aqueduct, which is amazing. There's bridges, just like the bridges that, that carry the water, all kinds of amazing architecture that still remains to this day. Lots of stages, lots of entertainment. It wasn't mostly good. It wasn't intellectual. It wasn't Shakespeare. A lot of it was base and gross and sexual and, and I mean, like a lot of entertainment today, I suppose. And then the sporting stuff, there's a lot of contests, but most of them were very bloody. They were to the death. You can see a lot of this post-New Testament era where you had a lot of Christians lose their lives in these bloody contests. Lots of music, 
We don't have time to get into that, but instrumental music, vocal music, a lot going on there. If you want to learn about the culture, I recommend this very interesting and creatively written book called The Lost Letters of Pergamum, a story from the New Testament world. I I had seen that and heard about that for years and I'd never read it until like last year because I always thought it was one of those, you know, lost letters of something. And I thought, I'm not going to read that. Well, then I realized what it was. And finally, I had enough people saying, you should read that. And then it started to be people I thought, why are you telling me to read that? It's a fictional story about the martyrdom of of Antipas, not Antipas Herod in the Bible. Uh, Well, I shouldn't say that. It's the Antipas that's mentioned in the letter to Pergamum in the book of Revelation. And this author creatively, and I think he's a professor, did this for his students to teach them all about Greco-Roman culture in the first century. Now, that's something I think it's hard to get your students to learn. This is very fun read, and it's pleasant. And even, matter of fact, if you just want to, I think Audible has it, you can listen to it, you know, when you're at the gym or whatever. It's, it's It's a fun read. It's all from a Christian perspective in trying to see uh, Antipas that is converted by by Luke, actually, as Luke starts to correspond with him. And it's just a fun read, but you'll learn a lot about the ancient culture from architecture to art to government. And you want to learn about this in a very easy way. Bruce Longnecker did us a favor by writing this book. And look at that. It's got 125 reviews and it's four and a half stars. Languages. Latin, of course, you would think would be all over the place. Well, Alexander the Great, going back to the beginning, and the Ptolemaic and Seleucid kingdoms, they did a great job really shoving Latin into simply sequestering it in the courts, putting it in some of the higher circles of education and places in Rome, mostly spoken in Spain and, and Rome and Italy. Latin would dominate later as the church moved out west, and as people wrote theology and commentaries, you'd see a lot more being written in Latin as the church moved on. But uh, Greek was the marketplace language. Greek was the language of the day, lingua franca, as they say. It was the language that you better know if you're going to be doing anything in the ancient world in the first century. Koine Greek, we call it. If you go to school and maybe at CBI, you take your Greek class, you're going to learn Koine Greek, not Attic Greek, which is some of the Greek of the classics that you'll read. If you go to Oxford or whatever, you'll learn Attic Greek. If you go to a seminary, you'll learn Koine Greek. Koine Greek is what we want to know because that's the language of the New Testament. That's the com- Koine means common language. Aramaic was a family language, but I think it's a lot less than has been purported. I know I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in a minority on this, but Aramaic, I mean, certainly was. And I think people knew it clearly, ancient Near East language, but I'm not convinced that the New Testament uh, didn't pick the language not only of communication in writing, but pick the language of the people. And that means the apostles and Jesus. I know that's the minority view, but when you have in scripture words that are actually taken out of the narrative and put in Aramaic, I'm saying if that was all in Aramaic, why would you take words out of the, the, the narrative and put it in Aramaic to say, this is what he said in Aramaic? Why, there's, you know, It's an odd thing to do. I think the reporting is, look, he spoke this in Aramaic. That was interesting that he went back to the Near Eastern language of Aramaic. And Aramaic is a dialect of sorts of classical Hebrew. And classical Hebrew, the language of the, of the Bible, uh, was still a language that was spoken, but it was more of a language for the rabbis and for study, and certainly the, the, the language that the Bible, the Old Testament, was written in. The culture, education, no public education till Vespasian, I think, in the Roman emperor. I don't have time for any of this either, but slaves were often the teachers in their homes, the tutors. Trade schools were common. Jewish scholarship, the kinds of things everyone needed to know to be basically a a religious teacher, was taught to the rabbis. If you were a real promising student like Saul of Tarsus, you'd be sent to the greats, the luminaries, the great professors in various places. Wow. Yeah, we don't have time for all this. But let me, I should, I should at least give you this. Where are we on still number four? Ouch. Did it seem like I was talking slow? I didn't feel like I was. All right, we'll, we'll pick this up next week.
we'll talk about the transportation. You know about the Roman roads. That was important. These were very wide, you know, helpful tools that God put in place for the traveling of the gospel. All right, let's pray. I need to get you up. God, thanks for the ability for us to sit in a air-conditioned room with padded chairs, with computers and notepaper, and the ability to think through the background of the New Testament. I know it seems removed from us in our day, but I pray that we would be uh, the kinds of Christians that would care enough about the setting of the New Testament to know more about it that we might be able to rightly understand a lot of the words that are said, a lot of the cultural context that these uh, truths are given in, the parables, and how they relate to the culture of the day. And God, I pray that we would enjoy our study as we continue it. Get us into the Gospels next week as we finish up this background material and allow us to make uh, adequate time through this study that we might not uh, find ourselves in December without finishing this course of study. Thanks for this team. I pray you'd keep them hanging in there with me, that they would be faithful and persevering through this time of, of studying your New Testament. Thanks for giving it to us and giving us the ability to get into it tonight. Dismiss us now with your favor upon us as we trust in Christ. Amen.